This is the Auto Body Podcast, presented by Clarity Co. We'll get stories and talk to people from all over the industry. Painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anybody in between. Let's do it. Welcome to the Auto Body Podcast. Auto Body Podcast. Presented by Clarity Coat. Now, here's your host, Adam Huber. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have another guy from across the world. I don't even know how we pick up people from all over the globe, but happy to have him here. For all the way from Spain, we have Juan Pablo Franch Mazzino, and I have tried to practice that name like half a dozen times. I'm sure I still butchered it. <laughs> Juan, how are no, you doing today? <laughs> very well, Adam. Thanks for having me, and you did quite well on my name. <laughs> that was really good. I think you're just being nice. <laughs> no, 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 no. Honestly. Um, so... I want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to do this podcast today specifically because it's actually a national holiday where you're at. Um, would you mind just kind of quickly talking about the holiday and, you know, what, what significance it has? Yeah, in Spain, you know, first week of December, we usually take uh, two days or even the whole week off. You know, it's a religious holiday and also our Constitution Day. So uh, 6th and 8th of December, we take off and... And it's nice to have some time off uh, before year end, this final sprint until Christmas and, and wrapping up things before the, the end is finally gone. Well, very nice. And again, appreciate you taking time out of your holiday to do this. No pleasure. Um, so this is, this is always so fascinating to me to hear how people in other countries and other places get into this whole industry. So can you just kind of walk us through what young Juan was like, where he was at? Um, I believe he started off in South America. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So I'm originally from Argentina. I grew up in Brazil, but then I came back to Argentina to study. And actually I, I did my university in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And while studying, I started working in, in finance, more specifically in auditing. And, and when I walked away from what was then the two of the big six, Pricewaterhouse, uh, I was doing um, banks and I wanted to really work in something much more like industrial. So I joined BSF back then as a controller. And, and my first assignment was being controller for the deco and refinish businesses. So that's when I moved uh, first time into coatings. So it was kind of a financial role, but really getting to know the business quite well. It's it's always really interesting to me. This is not planned at all, but the amount of people that we get on that started off with BASF or like, you know, uh, rolled into BASF. But to be honest with you, I'm not even sure if we've ever had, I think we've only had one person who actually yeah. works at BASF on. So always interesting mm -hmm. to me that a lot of people start their careers off with BASF and then they yeah. you know, eventually branch off into other things. So Well, it's, it's a huge company, honestly, yeah. and, and the coatings division is just one business. So, yeah, depending on where you are at the world, it's, it's a, a company where you would expect to find uh, many people doing a, a nice career and jumping from, from one business to the other. Yeah. 
So you said that uh, you grew up in Argentina, you went to Brazil, and then you went back to Argentina for your um, secondary education? Yes, yes. I um, finished high school and then I did university in, in Buenos Aires. Just out of curiosity, what was the reason why you went from Brazil back to Argentina for the secondary education part of it? Just a lot better school system over there? or No, just, just related to, to my uh, parents' work that they gotcha. relocated back. Got it. So I really love Brazil. So growing up there was was amazing, and and it was just a, a natural step. Now, as an ignorant American, what's like some of the biggest differences between Argentina and Brazil? Like, is Brazil more of like a kind of like a tropical type climate type area, or like what's what's kind of the differences? Well, it's it's hard to say because because both countries are really huge. Uh, geographically and and you would say it's like when you talk US it's hard to discuss uh, to really define what's living in the US like because as you say Midwest is not Miami is not Florida is not New York mm -hmm. I would say it's quite similar Buenos Aires and, and Argentina overall and Brazil but Brazil overall I would say it's it's huge I, I was living in Sao Paulo and Sao Paulo mm. is a, over 20 million inhabitants. Wow. Already back then it was over 20 million. Now I don't know exactly, but must be something like 25, 26. So it's a huge city, very diverse, like any, any of these major cities. So really lively. And, and Brazil as a whole, I, th I think, as you, as you know it from, from Carnival and the football and the atmosphere, is really a warm country, very nice place. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So you finished secondary education um, and you started working for BASF as a controller, which by the way, you and my wife would get along fabulously yeah. because she was an auditor and a controller. Wow. Um, so she's heavy into the finance stuff. <laughs> Me, I look at spreadsheets, I immediately just, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I tend to say it's a good basis for whatever you want to do afterwards business-wise, set up your own uh, entrepreneurial adventure and so on, because you really go deep into learning the basics, understanding figures. I think it's, it's a, a good training, whatever you decide to do afterwards. You know, what? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I will actually comment on that and say that, you know, there was a period of time in America where entre entrepreneurship was like the big thing, right? Like mm -hmm. it was, and mm -hmm. I would say that it's still kind of a big deal. And um, I've started multiple businesses, Clarity Coat being one of them. And, you know, you, you have people that ask you like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about going to college. You're like, should I go to business school or, you know, whatever. And I actually have told them like, honestly, no, don't go to marketing. Don't go to business. Don't do any of that because... Mm -hmm. While it's good, it's not as beneficial as going and learning finance, um, finances, sure. Sure. because if you don't have your money figured out, you yeah. don't have a business. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like having bad um, personal spending habits and then yeah. trying to out earn those bad personal spending yeah. habits. It just doesn't work. I fully agree. And even if then I specialized in marketing and sales, I have to say what, while I was studying, the logic was exactly as you described, you know, learn the hardcore finance, auditing, taxes and so on, because marketing and sales was supposed to be kind of easy, you know, mm -hmm. 
This is many years ago. I know it's become a bit more sophisticated. And, but it was like that. I learned the basics and then I developed myself into marketing and sales. Yeah, I would say, it, and I'll ask your opinion on this, but yeah. I would say that marketing and sales is, those are skill sets that are a little bit more nuanced in the way that um, they're more of like a soft skill where you have to, so like sales, right? You have to kind of pick up on what the other person is feeling. Like, are they kind of in, are they kind of out? Like, you just kind of have to go by feel and marketing. I would say if I was going to give anybody marketing advice, I would actually tell you to start studying psychology more than oh, yeah. anything else, because you have to understand how, when someone looks at something, how they're going to feel about it and why they want to buy into that particular thing and how to answer a pain point. Whereas yeah. financial, financial stuff is more of like, that's just a hard skill. Like it's just data. It's black and white. Um, you need to, I would say that really good CFOs or, um, or sorry, um, C, uh, yeah, CFOs, sorry. Yeah. Um, they are a little bit more in touch with their gut and they can pick mm -hmm. up on trends mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But you talk to most like, I don't know, financial people, they're just, they're just analytical type people. It's just hard data that's oh, yeah. in front of them and that's it. Would you oh, yeah. agree, disagree with it? No, no, fu fully agree. And, and it's not easy sometimes for the finance people, the, the real specialists, to really jump to the other side and get into the shoes either of the customer or the sales guy. Yeah. So it's, it's something like a, a, a tough crossover and you have to do it. But I fully agree with you that this marketing and sales side it's kind of understanding who is who and, and how do you reach the customer. So the customer journey, uh, the, the distribution route to the customer, and especially in our coatings business, that makes a huge or all the difference. If you understand who is who and, and their interests, their needs, and then you start talking marketing and sales. Yeah. And as you say, the basics are kind of you know, there's a logic behind. You are yep. trying to fulfill needs, say which are their interests, their concerns, dealing with objections, you know, and then you set up the whole, let's say, a sales process around what suits that market uh, the best. Yeah, totally agree. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you're with BASF. How long are you with uh, BASF, BASF for? So actually, I uh, overall, I, I worked with BSF for 21 years. Dang. Oh, yeah. And, and jumping from this controlling function, it was only one year and a half. And my boss back then said, uh, would you be interested in, in taking over our marketing for the refinish business? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And I never looked back. That, that was when I put my first uh, foot into marketing. And I really enjoyed the change. So never looked back, would not ever go back to finance and controlling, <laughs> even if it was a super school, top quality school, as we discussed. But, but it was a, a long journey into getting deeper and deeper in, in marketing and sales. And, that's, and that's I would so add interesting. something which for me is top. I would really recommend every marketing guy to spend some time in the field, you know, doing a real sales job and even vice versa, you know, to understand how it works. And, and I think it gives you a deep knowledge of the business. Yeah, because 
you're hearing in real time and seeing in real time what a customer's pain points are, feeling that anger or disappointment yeah. or whatever it might yeah. be. And then, and then when you go back to HQ, oh, yeah. it's, you're able to translate that so much better to whatever the media that you're trying to push. So, so you were doing marketing. Um, what was, what was your guys's main, um, marketing outlet? Like, was it like print or was it digital at that point? Like what, what year frame are we talking about? Well, back then, so my first job in marketing, this is long time ago. So I would say digital was not that much into the, the topic. We would have a marketing plan looking very conventional on doing uh, trade fairs, printed material, customer events, uh, product demonstration uh, events, very traditional. Worked fine for, for the time. So I think this, this kind of typical uh, mix, marketing mix, was very much effective. Of course, that changed slowly in time. I did get I would say two or three years down the road, there were the first implementations of e-commerce at BSF. And I was also invited on, on a project basis to implement e-commerce back then. And this was not just for coatings, but coatings and, and other chemical businesses. And believe me, Adam, that was quite a challenge in the <laughs> sense that there was a lot of resistance. Mm. What now sounds weird to say, how can you resist, you know, e-commerce? Back then, uh, not everybody was convinced to move into this direction, especially in the B2B business, which was my case. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, it's so interesting because you can see a lot of parallels between what you're talking about, where today e-commerce is like, Everybody does e-commerce. Oh, like yeah. you would never think about doing a business without e-commerce. I mean, yeah. obviously, okay, take that back. If you're an auto body shop, like you can't do e-commerce, but yeah. service-based business. Um, sure. But if you're selling products, like it would be ridiculous to think about not sure. doing e-commerce, right? Yeah, no way. Um, but back then, there was a whole lot of resistance to that idea, th saying things like, "Oh, well." the customer's never going to buy something that they can't touch and feel. Um, yes. If they can't experience it, they're not going to purchase it. Yeah. And that's, that's something that people should keep in mind. Whenever you start to hear resistance about new things now mm -hmm. about how oh, we'll never do that because of yeah. X, Y, and Z reason. Yeah. Well, people have said that about every single technological update ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, and discussions were ridiculous uh, by today's standards, like no customer will place an order online. You know, that's that's not their job. They would never accept an electronic invoice. And look where we are today. <laughs> eh? Crazy. Eh? But yeah. those were real objections back then. So how did you get yourself into that mindset change of going from a financial guy, a numbers guy to mm -hmm. marketing, you know, what did you read anything or did you get into the field? Like, what'd you do? Yeah, I think it was a combination of, you know, being excited about the change. I was still young. So there was a lot of reading, getting up to date in this saying, okay, that's the part of, of the theory I have not learned at university. 
So let's pick up a couple of books, you know, the, the typical porter and, and marketing gurus back then. Did a couple of seminars, which, which I was supported, of course, by the company to attend seminars. And then it was really learning the business from the technical point of view, from the sales point of view, as you say, discuss uh, a lot with our distribution, so our distributors. It was indirect business back then via distributors and agents and really get to know the end users, so the body shops, which made all the difference. So it was a combination, I would say. Gotcha. And where are you located at now when you're doing the marketing for BSF? This is still in South America, correct? Yeah, so my, my first marketing job was in Buenos Aires doing uh, the, the business for Argentina. Gotcha. And then you moved to Spain at some point. Yes. So after six, six years approximately doing this marketing role, there was a chance to, so I was invited by the company to move to Madrid back then. And this is when I jumped to the OEM business. So idea back then was to move to Spain, learn about the OEM business with the initial idea to go back to Brazil to manage this business, which then turned, up, turned out a, a completely different way. I, I stayed uh, much longer in, in Spain. And again, I, I would I always say the, the business change. So when you talk about people outside of the coatings industry, you get, yeah, yeah, coatings. But when you get to know the coatings industry from inside, you know, there are a lot of different businesses like OEM, nothing to do with refinish. Industrial coatings is again quite diverse. Deco coatings, printing, printing inks and so on. And, and the change from refinish into OEM was quite a stretch, I would say. <laughs> it's really demanding business. Mm. Supply chain, logistics, on-time deliveries, technically, Again, it's a, a next step, you know, you discuss the same properties, but with customers which are really on the, on the high end of, of demand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was a, that was a bit of a shock to you and a bit of a learning curve for you to, to, to learn that then, huh? It was really to recalibrate and say, okay, I thought I knew the coatings business. Well, I knew the deco and the refinish. Now I need to learn this new business. This was a sales role, so very much in the field and, and customer facing role, but hugely interesting for me. What, how, how old were you at this point? Um, probably 28 or something like this. So you're, you're at an age where like, you're still pretty malleable, like oh, yeah. moldable, you know, you can oh, still, yeah. um, yeah. you can react to these kinds of, um, big stressors or changes and yes. stuff like that. Do you think that that made you a better overall salesperson, marketing person or better person for the company overall, because you understood the, all of the intricacies of the deco and everything like that. Um, that business plus you could take some of that knowledge, whatever it might have been, some of that skill set over to the refinishing um, part of the industry? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think uh, the OEM really teaches you, the OEM business teaches you a lot about the technical stuff, 
but I would say above the technical stuff, which is really demanding, I would say you get to really learn the key account management side of things. So you're dealing with huge accounts like the Daimlers, Fords, GMs, Toyotas and all these guys. And you really need a key account approach because you are not, let's say, whatever your responsibility is, you're part of a global organization because the customers in turn are global and you're usually interacting, let's say, with all your colleagues globally to really put forward action plans, service plans, uh, take part in, in global bids and so on. And then you understand what really key account uh, is all about. Would you mind just kind of explaining what a key account, the idea behind that for anybody who doesn't understand oh, yeah. what that is? So, so you would define a key account as a, as a very large customer which is complex by nature. So it's not a, a, a mom and pop shop. So it's not a family owned business normally. It's really a conglomerate of companies. And, and you have different um, contact persons with different roles. So you need a much more, let's say, sophisticated, complex sales approach in saying, if, if we go back to the OEM business, okay, it's a company producing cars and those cars will be assembled, painted, and then shipped to, to the distribution network. But then you say, okay, it's not just if I'm a sales guy doing, uh, being responsible for this specific key account, I, I don't have just one contact person in, in let's say the purchase department. There is a global purchase department, maybe local purchase. Then there's engineering because there are projects and sometimes you bid uh, on, on projects, on specific sites, on layers of coatings for one side. You, you can bid on, on a specific layer across production sites, for instance, for the complete European uh, primer business, just to say, give you an example. And then you have quality, environmental considerations, supply chain management. So you really have a huge diversity of contact persons and you have to set up your team to really match the customer expectations. Mm -hmm. So this kind of um, bow tie, one contact person for everything usually is, is by far not the best approach. I can't even imagine something like that because now you've got instead of building a relationship with one single person, now you've got to build a relationship or understand how multiple different people work inside of an industry. Well, or sorry, inside of a customer base. And man, that would, how did you, how did you learn to navigate that? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of coordination. So as much as in a, in a body shop, you know, the body shop manager, has a phone which is all the time red hot and ringing and you know how it works. Here I would say it's the same. Lots of coordination, being alert to what's going on uh, everywhere and really pulling all strings so that you have action plans in, in place and everybody really playing their role to, to build a, a consistent, let's say, service approach to the customer. Gotcha. Um... I, I should have probably asked this before, but 
how has that moved from Brazil to Spain? Like as far as like culturally, language, you know, anything like that for you? Yeah, much easier than the than the business change, because <laughs> uh, in in Argentina, you know, the, we were set up uh, by by a lot of immigration, and something like 70 percent of of the the original immigration in Argentina was either Spanish or Italian. Oh, so really? culture wise, you know, it's quite familiar for us. Language is, of course, not, not an issue, it's, it's the same, just with a different accent. But, you know, Spanish is very rich accent-wise. When you go, you know, from, from Mexico downwards, you can find like 15 different accents at least for all countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, and, and they all sound different, but we all communicate with Spanish. So, so really easy, and, and, and I'm back after a long loop back in Spain, but I enjoy very much the country, and, and I, I, I cannot recommend uh, even for holidays or spending some time is a, a lovely place and, and really good quality of living. So, yeah, it was, it was an easy move. Well, I can tell you that... Um me and the wife we are actually planning or hoping to do a at least one vacation to spain um in the not too distant future because of my business partner i i told you about that already yes. so we've already got a house and everything there so <laughs> great <And laughs> not definitely... like for anybody who's listening we don't own a house in spain we just have access to a house in spain <laughs> definitely worth it great place just spend yeah. some time in holidays yes um so you're in Spain and then you end up making a transition over to Germany, which is culturally and everything just a total, I can't, I don't know. Would you say it's like a total 180 or would you say that, um, it's just a like 90 degrees off? From well, well, nowadays you could say it's not that much of a change as it used to be 15, 20, 25 years ago, because, you know, we talk about the European Union. And we have a, a common currency, the euro, and, and the border, let's say, um, uh, even if every country in Europe is quite itself, you know, the French feel very French, the Italian, and everybody says we are extremely different from our neighbors, uh, you would say it's not a massive, let's say. You have to be very, I would say, intercultural uh, savvy. So intercultural awareness, how to do business, how to communicate, how to relate to people in other countries in Europe. I think it's, it's massive. It's really important. And then it's, it's just the language. You know, I, I didn't speak German or I didn't learn German as a kid when I was in school. So that took some effort afterwards. And, and it's not an easy language by any means. So, so that was part of the challenge. But uh, as I was telling you before, I think uh, things work really well, socially, culturally, education is perfect. So for my kid and so on. So it was a, a really interesting move. And it was moving from local roles, either Spain, Portugal. When I was in Spain, for instance, I had responsibility over Spain, Portugal, and some businesses in Turkey. When I was in South America, it was Argentina. 
and so on. And when I moved into Germany, it was an European role. Hey guys, Adam from the podcast. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. Just wanted to ask you a quick favor. If the show has brought you value in some way, would you mind giving us a review and sharing the show? It really helps the show get out there. Also, if you are looking to expand the services that your shop offers and you want to do more than collision work, you should really check out our company, Clarity Coat. Clarity Coat is a peelable paint that allows body shops to offer color changes cheaper than a repaint while still looking like real paint. You can also offer clear protection that has no edges and is sprayed instead of laid. Unlike vinyl and PPF, Clarity Coat can be sanded and polished, so you can give your customer the exact look that they are wanting. If you are looking to expand your shop's services, go to claritycoat.com and fill out our Become an Installer form. All right, let's get back to the show. The understanding different cultures and how they respond to certain things or how they um how they respond to work versus family and all those kinds of things i'll be honest with you is really difficult for me to understand as an american because mm-hmm. you, so what's interesting is um so my business partner justin he's from the uk right yeah. and I think one of the things that has probably been the trickiest thing for him to understand is just how big America is. Oh, yeah. And the easiest way I could figure out how to relate it to him is I said, you take all of Europe, which still isn't as big as America, and every country that is in Europe is basically a state. Like, oh, yeah. it's just an individual state in America. So I was like, so you talking about us just driving over to Chicago from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is like you saying, I'm going to just drive from London over to Germany. Like, it's hours drive, right? So oh, yeah. that kind of helped him out a little bit. But one thing that I've really noticed culturally, um, the differences, is you are going to have cultural differences in America, right? Mm-hmm. But it's more of like, large sections of america where you have cultural differences so the midwest is just kind of like the midwest like we we do things and we we have certain tendencies and everything like that but then you have like southeast america which is just like totally different you have northeast america which is just totally different but anyways the reason why i'm bringing this up is because when i went over to the uk in july Mm -hmm we visited one of our distributors down in France and my business partner was kind of coaching me. He's like, Hey, just so you understand, like they understand English, but you kind of got to go like slower and they don't want to be pressured into anything. Like it's about building relationships with them and everything like that. Right. Whereas, um, when we deal with, um, some of our German distributors, he's like, you got to have your ducks in a row. They're very process oriented. Oh, like, yeah. it's, oh, yeah. it's, they just move down the line. Right. Oh, yeah. And if, if <laughs> sorry, you would, if you would, let's say, try to simplify something, which is very complex, yeah. you know, socially cultural, you could say South of Europe is very much relationship based. Mm. So you need to trust the, the other party. And then you start to discuss business and it builds up from there. If you take the upper half and you could say Germany, uh, Benelux, Nordics, all the upper part, as you say, you have to be fact based. They want to know everything about your product, your service capabilities, who you are and so on. And maybe in a second stage, they want to know Adam and his partner as, as persons, yeah? Which is, there's nothing wrong. It's just a different approach, yeah? Yep. And it's so funny because, like, I, like, I care about people, right? Like, yeah. obviously, like, I have the podcast and I love learning about people. 
but like when it comes to business i'm very like okay what's the bullet points all right i I think we want to move forward with this and then it's about relationships second type of thing um i think it's just a a matter of adjusting your communication style and what you put more emphasis on is not neglecting either the technical the bullet points the structure uh, in favor of let's say the soft side of things Mm. i think it's just uh, where you put your your focus on and and your emphasis yeah so i don't know if this is too pointed of a question but is there a particular culture that you have found that is the most difficult for you to um align with or work with just because of just the the expectation differences between the two different cultures if you're asking my own personal journey yeah yep um i i did struggle a bit for instance in turkey but i cannot say whether it's it's just the the cultural side of things which i found uh, really interesting and it was a culture i didn't know anything about and i got to learn a lot in my in my very often travels there and so but I, I would have to be honest in saying it was a strange setup in which ourselves, we were still set up as a joint venture, customer was still set up as a joint venture, so a very complex, let's say, business um, environment. Gotcha. And the business itself was complex, uh, language, not everybody spoke English, so you always needed some kind of translation, which doesn't make it <laughs> easier, you know, and it's a language that you cannot get any single word you know it's totally different once you are there two years you start to hear like the good morning thank you please goodbye and so on but everything else is really something that sounds you know totally different now again ignorant american question um in the european union is english getting taught at a younger and younger age now to where like that way it's it's much oh, easier yeah. so you have english as a secondary language across most countries in the eu and then obviously they have their dominant language which is yeah. you know um spanish or turkish yeah. or you know whatever it might be yeah. Ab- absolutely uh, like this so mm-hmm. you would say young young people uh, in in whichever country now have a, a quite good level of english in former times, maybe the second language was split into French or English. Now I would say it's massively English. Mm. And, and it would be hard to find young people in, in any given country without a decent, uh, uh, let's say, level of, of English nowadays. And you do have a few countries, which is amazing, and it's part of this learning why every country is different, like uh, Netherlands or Belgium, where they speak. I would say, I I cannot say, quote, uh, which percentage of the population, but I've met a lot of people speaking four, five, five languages, which for me, it was like, wow, you know, I speak a couple of languages, but it blew me away. It was like five. Yeah. I even met guys with six languages and say, wow. Well, Impressive. yeah, we have, um, we have distributors in Belgium Yeah, and you know, Belgium is just kind of like its own weird, 
oh yeah situation all in its own right but they i mean from the get-go you have to get used to pretty much three or four different languages um right just in belgium alone oh yeah um and then and then you have to learn english on top of all that so what was really interesting is we we actually met them in france they drove down to france Mm -hmm. to meet us there and they were like you know my my other languages are fine but like english a little bit shaky but i I, like to me like i thought they did just fine you know what i mean like they might not pick up on the nuances of english oh yeah you know where oh yeah uh only people that have been speaking the language their entire life are ever going to pick up on but um i don't know i i I think it's so fascinating what's one of the most common questions i get with clarity code is like how do you work with people all over the world and i tell them i'm like actually uh as long as you don't expect people to pick up um the small nuances in language like you know yeah. when we say i don't know i don't even know a good example like um know, but there are many yeah there's there's uh, you know what i'm talking about yeah, but, yeah sure um i say actually everyone speaks english like oh yeah good enough to be able to build a relationship oh, yeah. and do business like oh, yeah. it it works out just fine i think every time you get to learn a, a new language I think a good approach or a good advice would be uh, communication over perfection. Like yeah. make sure you're, you are able to understand, express yourself and get to a point where you overread this kind of misunderstandings. Yeah. You know, when you unintentionally say something and you really screw up or you convey a different message and business wise, that could be tricky. I think if you're over this point, you know, minor pronunciation mistakes or, or missing one or the other word is not so bad, right? Yeah. And I think uh, to that point, I think what a lot of people need to understand is that people know when you don't speak their language natively and they're okay with, oh, they yeah. can piece together what you're trying to say. So obviously our podcast is mostly in America, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if someone comes over from Asia, any Asian country, sure they don't speak English very well. Right. It's, yeah, it's a, sure. it's a huge difference from Asian language to English. But like, we all know that one Asian person that we've tried talking to and it's very broken English, but you understand what they're trying to sure. get at. Now, sure. as if you're an American in a whole different country, it's the exact same setup. You're like, if I tried to speak Spanish to you, which I could not do because I only know like three words, you would, you would be like, oh, okay, I, I understand what you're trying to get at, you know. No, but but, but you're, it's fair what you say that if you if you really go the extra mile and you try to speak a few words of the other language and so, it's appreciated. And if you go to business, let's choose a, a common language in which we can work things out, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, so sorry. Sorry for anybody. We've spent quite a bit of time on that. But to me, that's absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're working at BASF. Um, you got thrust into this new world and everything like that. What's wh- How long were you in that role um, before yeah. you kind of moved on to something else? Yeah. So interesting. It was something like only two to three years in, in that role. So that was a transportation business, Europe-wide. And at that point in time, BSF decides to divest the complete industrial coatings business uh, and sell it to Axonobel. Mm. Yeah? My business, transportation, was actually not part of the industrial coatings business. It was like a satellite of refinished coatings. So this was uh, coating systems for 
trucks, buses, trailers, uh, trains and ACE equipment, so agricultural and construction equipment. And, and long story short, soon before the, um, the closing of this deal, which was a huge deal, very much motivated by businesses like coil coatings, foil coatings, and, and general industry and so on. My business was kind of uh, partially tailor-made systems. So we borrowed some materials from Refinish, but we also, let's say in between brackets, borrowed some material from industrial coatings, OEM coatings, to serve, let's say, these major uh, transportation customers, which needed everything from e-coat, liquid coatings, a bit of powder and, and everything, I would say. So very diverse. And the decision was, let's keep at BSF the, the truck and bus business, which is much more like the refinish, the OEM, so the core BSF coatings businesses. And the other part, it was like a sectioned, so 50-50. And the other part, which was much more tailor-made, was put together with industrial coatings and divested and sold to Axonobel. Mm. So that's when I was invited to move to Axonobel. And this was the second part of my staying in Germany. Already after the, the closing of this deal, I worked the next two to three years integrating the acquired business into Axonobel. That was, yeah, massive work. So not just changing customers, but the complete portfolio had to migrate from in, in stage one still being produced at BSF coating sites to being moved and relocated and transferred to Axonobel sites. Wow. So that was a, a major challenge. That sounds like an, an immense amount of work. Oh, yeah. Uh, and again, uh, a next learning opportunity in saying every time it gets challenging and the road gets tough, you do get to learn a lot. So really thankful for, for this learning opportunity. What, uh, how big is um, Axo Nobel at that point? Like, I mean, obviously I would say it's probably nowhere near BASF, right? Uh, in the coatings, so actually, it's I would say it's not that much comparable because Axon Nobel at that point in time had a chemical division and had coatings, and then divested the, the chemicals and really uh, kept the, the the core business in coatings. Mm. And for BSF, coatings is just one division, and the much larger part by far is all the other chemicals agrochemicals, uh, petrochemicals, uh, resins, uh, pigments, all the other divisions. So I would, it's hard to compare one to one. You know, gotcha. Axo is, is one of the, the big players in coatings, you know, with all the, the other usual uh, global companies. And, and it was just changing. And again, if we touch the cultural uh, point, Again, very interesting to say I worked over 20 years for a German company and then joined a Dutch company, mm. which again, you could say they are neighbors because geographically you can drive, you know, in two hours and get from Germany into the, the Dutch border. But again, culturally, it's, it's a bit different. Yeah. 
So what was that transition like for you working um, working for BASF and Axel Nobel? Like what was some of the big um, learning curves that you had to go through um, for each, each company? So again, I, I did some, as usually when every time I changed jobs, I did my, picked up my books, my studies and, and tried to catch up and, and try to anticipate myself on onto what I was getting into. Uh, but you, you learn a lot by, but just by doing. And, and again, I think it was very interesting into every business transition is, is quite challenging and bumpy, you could say, to be honest, because again, customers uh, are usually not asked, do you want to change suppliers? Uh, a whole part of the of the team is also not asked do you want to change companies you know the story so there's a lot of change management involved again another key word that that we hear a lot and sounds like a buzzword but i think when you are involved uh, from the inside in into these processes i think it's it's huge huh? change yeah. management what it implies and 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 discussing very intensively with all parties, what's going on, where we are heading on, what are the challenges ahead, discussing the pain points, the advantages, because of course there are advantages in every change, um, and, and fully looking into what could be better in the future. So you go from Axon Nobel to what was the what was the next step for you? So I, I integrated this business and like I said, something like two, two and a half years, so lots, lots of work and, and the integration was quite successful, even though it was bumpy and, and not always very pleasant. And that's when I, uh, I decided to take a, a side road, relocate back to Spain and join my, my current company, which is called Roberlo. It's the largest Spanish coatings producer. It's part of a group called Briolf, of comprised of seven companies, uh, something like 220 to 250 million euros turnover, mm. and very much focused in refinish, but also in, in spray coatings, some, a bit of OEM, a bit of um, chemical anchoring business, so all across the, the coatings industry. Interesting. So, I mean, you, up at this point, you'd spent most of your life working for large companies, corporations, and everything like that. And would it be fair to say that the new role at Roberlo is um, a smaller company? What was that yes. transition for yes, you yes, like? Yes, yes, indeed. So every since the very beginning, when I I worked for Price Waterhouse, KPMG in the auditing world, then joined BSF. All these were uh, massive global companies. Uh, Roberto is, is a, a smaller company by these standards, but, but it has, I think, a, a wonderful point, at, at least for me, was very attractive. And, and this was way more important than, than relocating back to Spain and, and buying ourselves a, a home and so on, uh, which is it's in growth mode. So Roberto and the Briolf group is growing a lot. And I think it's, it's very, let's say, um, rewarding 
when you are working for a company, an organization that's really pushing forward to grow, to develop, to acquire new business, this combination of organic growth, uh, uh, acquisitions. This year, uh, the group bought two additional companies in Italy, by the way, the, the two wow. of them. And, and I think it makes a huge difference because, as you know, in Refinish, not everything is, is rosy and very nice. So the long-term picture has some clouds in the sky, you know, because of, of this uh, trend towards less uh, accidents, which will hit hard, I think, our more developed regions like North America, like Europe, I think will be hit first mm -hmm. when the, the Teslas and similar vehicles really work as, as they are supposed to. I think we will see it. Of course, we always get the compensation of, of other regions in, this, in South and Central America and Asia pushing very hard, which will some count, somehow counterbalance, right? I think the, the relative weight of the regions, if we take a long-term approach, will continue to change. Asia will be gaining and gaining and gaining um, you know, relevance, and probably our more developed and the biggest, biggest chunks of the coatings industry by today, North America and, and Europe will decrease in, in proportion, right? Yeah. And we, and we as, let's say, professionals and companies, we just need to acknowledge this and, and learn and really to change our approach. Probably again, in this intercultural awareness, become more global, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, what are you, is there anything that you guys are concentrating on as a company to, um, so you can see these storm clouds ahead, you can see the, roadblocks resistances and everything like that is there anything that you guys are concentrating on to um, help with that to overcome any of that yeah i think one of the the oldest uh, tricks in in the book is diversification and and this could be a product portfolio businesses but also geographical and and that's something that, that uh, we are doing quite well in, in being very aggressive in, in covering the globe and being very much exports focused. So not depending so much on, on the local market and the neighboring markets, but really being aggressive in, in, in understanding these geographical, let's say, uh, trends, what's going on in, in Southeast Asia, in the Americas, and, and every time I would say the organization, and, and not just talking about uh, my own, I think we need to feel less of our own. Like if we are from the Midwest, from Spain, from, from Germany, whatever, and really approach a, a global business. And that helps a lot to minimize what's going on specifically, like right now in Europe because of Ukraine, Russia, and so on. We have a huge energetic crisis, cost of, uh, you know, you, you must have heard electricity and gases has skyrocketed yeah. five times or, or fivefold, tenfold. And that's really impacting our business as well. Yeah. Body shops are really under a lot of stress on, on costs lately. I, yeah, I, 
I really hate to say this, but I think that over the next couple of years, I don't think we're anywhere near being done. Oh, um, yeah. I think I think you're. Ju- I'm just going to call it a, the, the great reset. You're just going to mm-hmm. see a lot of things just just reset. Like, oh yeah, there's a lot of things that are going to get dialed way back to um, basics mm-hmm. and executing on those basics really really well. Um, oh yeah, so, I, I was. I have to be honest, and I was the first, uh, let's say, to be wrong. If you would have asked me what's with this COVID and so on, I said, ah, it's not going to be so bad. You know, it's the press. Everybody is exaggerating. I would have never imagined how long, how deep, uh, massive lockdowns for me. That was kind of, uh, it cannot be, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's okay to be wrong every once in a while. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Again, uh, we learn, you know, it's just like learning and growing. And and then what happened with the the raw materials and and the the stuff not being able to come from from Asia or from whatever. The, The story with the chips and the automotive production saying, wow, that's weird, you know? Yeah cars have chips since since ages so what's going on it really um more than anything the last couple of years have really highlighted how much of a house of cards um a lot of the global systems were dependent on i mean the was it the it's not the suez canal but what was the what was the strait that got shut down for a month or so yes with the the ship being crossed over in the middle right yeah yeah i I apologies i don't remember what the strait was called but um i mean who would have thought that all it took to cripple the entire global um infrastructure was one ship (laughs) just just parked (laughs) it's hard to believe huh yeah i mean and and you just think like and then you start to realize like those straits or those canals or whatever there's only like what is it like three or four of them um globally in the entire world and you block one and it just brings everything to its knees because everything out there for the last decade or so has been built on just-in-time manufacturing and just-in-time shipping and production and everything so if that one ship is delayed by more than a week it, yeah. it just it's a huge ripple effect yeah. but you could also say you know it comes back to basics in the sense that uh, then we went all the way back to very basics of of business management like saying okay dual sourcing in our procurement processes you know it's all is not all cost 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 is also securing supplies and this is by no means new, you know? Mm-hmm. We just forgot about it and said, oh no, now it's a global marketplace, we can source much cheaper, but what about securing our supplies? Yeah, yeah. And, and this past couple of years, again, made a massive difference, you know? If you had enough stock, and in the coatings industry it was an issue, do you have all your portfolio complete or are you suffering from, from lack of raw materials? Yeah. Um, just real quick, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. um, how are you guys, so you guess you said that you're, you're finding companies, acquiring them, bringing them mm-hmm. into the portfolio and everything like that. What is it that you guys are kind of looking for as far as like, what makes a company attractive as far as like acquiring them, bringing in the portfolio? And then what does that whole, um, process look like for you guys? 
I think is is trying to a very find, complex uh, question. Yeah, I, I know, I, I know, I know. I would say, long story short, and, and with the risk of oversimplifying, is how complementary and and how much of of potential synergies can you find? It's not just let's say a simple equation that you say. I buy a company with this much resources, this many employees, and this many production sites and customers on turnover. There's much more into the, the analysis and the equation. Gotcha. You just yeah. say, does it make sense or not? Yeah. 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 I, 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 I'm sorry for that. I, I guess I didn't. I probably should have thought about that a little bit because that's just such a complex thing. But you're not you're you're not out there trying to buy a, a chip manufacturer because no. it doesn't make any sense for no. your guys's company. But you mm. might look at um, there is uh, I'm going to get flamed for this, but we had a podcast episode mm-hmm. probably ten episodes ago or so of a guy who um, has a um, produces color helps produce color. He's just a He's okay. a color. Um, he helps make colors. So and, designer. Yeah. D- okay. Yep. Designer. Um, I might have to try and find that episode now. Mm-hmm. But um, it was it was super interesting because like something like that might be something that you guys would look at and say, okay, do we need to build up our the color portion of our business? Um, Paul um, Geardhart. Uh, let's okay. see. He works for Color Invent BV. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and actually, weirdly enough, he worked for Axo Novell um, before uh-huh. that as well. <laughs> okay, it's small coatings is a small world, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you might look at that company and say, "Hey, you know, our our color division or whatever, mm. we might want to look at making this a little bit stronger because it's currently where we're weak." And this company over here has been doing really well. They've got some decent resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bring them into the fold and see if that makes sense for us. Is that kind of like the generality behind it? Yeah, but if I tie this with what we were talking just a few minutes uh, ago on on integration, I think it's one part is really choosing your acquisition targets very well, Mm. but as important as this is what you do afterwards in the integration process. So it's kind of what comes in in the acquired company there's a lot of know-how uh, added value and so on that you have to capitalize and not just let's say you know put this into your existing business neglect what comes as new saying you know that's not the way we do things right here and and of course not to lose any valuable assets uh, human resources and customers along the way because in 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 there's i think many examples of unsuccessful integrations not not oh, just yeah. in the coatings industry which is a pity because we should also learn from from the not so successful experiences of others right yeah yeah um it is shocking oh, the yeah. failure rate of mm-hmm. even even as something as um a new owner stepping into a and into an existing business, right? Sure. The the amount the the percentage of success is way lower than what most people think it is. Oh yeah. Um and actually I've personally witnessed this firsthand. Uh when I sold my company, 
did not go so well for the mm-hmm. other guy as far as like um uh anyways d- don't want to get into no, no, that too much it's, but it's it's a fair comment and i think the the preparation and the transition and the carryover especially of of the previous management uh supporting the 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 let's say the first steps baby steps of of the newly formed or integrated company it, are very important and and going back to hard skills versus soft skills mm-hmm. i would say that if you are a change manager mm-hmm. you're going to be so far on the soft skill side where you just have to feel people out and you have to kind of guide them along to this new transition and everything like yes. that because if you try to present them with facts, data, and everything like that, people oh, don't yeah. care about that. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, there might be there's oh, very yeah. few people in the company that would care about that. Oh yeah, I'm I'm by no means uh, an expert in integrations, acquisitions, and and this kind of of work, which is very complex. But I've heard something of uh, uh, within the acquiring company and the team that's working on the acquisition and the integration to have somebody solely responsible of the customer experience mm. saying he should be the voice of the customer and really have some power in saying no 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 this is not the way we should do this beware be careful let's uh, rethink this or that and it makes all all sense huh? yeah well uh Juan it has been a absolutely wonderful chat um what a uh, is there anything that you want to kind of close it out with? No, Do you want to no, you no. want to tell people? Really, really nice chat and and many thanks for for the invitation, Adam. Well, it was great, really fun. Where uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, mostly LinkedIn. I'm quite an old fashioned guy, so I'm not very <laughs> active in 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 social media. So my company is, but me personally not that much. But LinkedIn is is where I move, and and you can find me. Awesome. All right, guys, go check them out on LinkedIn. And Juan, again, thank you so much for coming on today's show. It, again, it was such a pleasure talking to you and learning about your life and um, just the various different parts of what you've done and what how that fits into the industry as a whole. Many thanks to you, Adam. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Auto Body Podcast, presented by Clarity Code. Our passion is to talk to and about anyone in the industry, from painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anyone in between. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, visit us at ClarityCoat.com and find us on Facebook and YouTube at ClarityCoat. See you next time on the Auto Body Podcast.